Welcome to Finance with Factor, a place you can come to laugh and learn from local experts about everything related to the world of real estate. Each week we cover a unique topic to help you understand the mortgage industry, navigate the home buying process, and grow your business while maintaining a slice of sanity. Now that he has climbed safely atop his soapbox, here is your host, a senior loan officer with Mortgage Network, Jason Factor. Everywhere I go these days, I see two things. Congratulations signs, pictures, and parties of recent grads out there. And the other one, home renovation projects. So how do these two things combine? Well, today we dive into an episode on Finance with Factor where we get to see just how they do. The reality is that a home is an asset. It can increase in value, it can decrease in value, and the only way to grab at that value is to sell your home or refinance. When you refinance, one option is called a cash-out refinance. While rates are low at historic lows, values at historic highs, many people are taking advantage of this to capture and reinvest some of those funds in their in the equity of their home. Some clients have done it and actually been able to reduce the rate, pull funds, and keep the payments about the same. In fact, I have a couple of clients who are actually even lowering their monthly payment while grabbing at the equity of their home. It can be pretty tempting. You can use it to renovate a kitchen or reinvest it in, say, like a college savings plan or 429 plan. Many people often say that the home is the biggest investment you make in your life. Clearly, they've never seen a college tuition bill, or at least haven't seen one lately. So today's guest is someone who can actually help us demystify that a bit, understand the college admissions process. What do schools look at when evaluating what need-based financial aid looks like? How does our home value, our home equity, the cash on hand, impact that process? Today's guest is a close personal friend, a customer, and most notably, uh, someone who can shed a little light on today's conversation. Emily roper Doton is the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at Olin College, and uh, welcome to Finance with Factor. Thanks, Jason. It's exciting to be here. Um, as Jason said, I'm the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at Olin College. Uh, this is my sixth year in that role, which feels a little bit crazy. Um, before that, I spent nine years at Tufts in the undergraduate admission office. Uh, so good amount of time um, spending my career understanding and getting into the minds of 17 and 18 year old students as they go to college. Um, it is a little crazy sometimes in there, but it's a lot of fun. I actually really, really love what I do. Um, and when I came to Olin five years ago, um, adding the financial aid component to my portfolio was actually a pretty exciting thing for me professionally to be able to see how both the, how the worlds of admission and financial aid intersect. In a lot of places, they can feel a little bit separate, um, but now it's all under my leadership. So it's a lot of fun to be able to see what that looks like. And obviously every school is insanely unique, but what I love about Emily, not only is she a really cool friend that I like to hang out with, and, and weirdly, we don't talk a lot of business, although I always find what you do totally fascinating. Um, and as a recovering university professional, um, you know, it, it's always nice to see the other side of things. For those of you who don't know, I was in fundraising before I got into mortgages. So we were doing things like raising scholarships, but we weren't allocating them. Um, Emily is like a master planner at putting things together. Um, so I would be curious to pick your brain. So Jason Factor is applying to college um, and you get the application. 
what like what are you really looking at when you build out your class because it's not always just jason's qualified like you can't take owens a great university for engineering but you're not going to take seven students from lexington off the math league so how do you start to build things out and what are the things that you guys prioritize in and around both the admission process in terms of the qualifications and then the financial aid and how do those things wed together Sure. So one of the things that I think is always important to think about is, is that academic preparation is always the bedrock of every application. So when a student is building a college list, when they're applying, they should real, realize the first thing that any school is going to look at is your academic preparation and potential. For many colleges, there are more qualified students than we can actually admit. So Olin is certainly in that bucket as well as, um, as Tufts where I was prior. Um, where you can't just admit everyone who, when you look at their transcript and their testing, that they can do the work. So you have to figure out what are the ways that you're going to shrink the number that can do the work to the smaller group that you're actually going to invite onto your campus. Um, so when we're talking about the academics, it's usually the transcript, sometimes testing. This year is a wild year in terms of testing with massive amounts of cancellations of exams, a record number of schools actually going test optional this year, um, which is incredibly gratifying in a lot of ways for many of us who have wanted to be able to see more equity in the process in that way. But so academics, and then we say, okay, who's going to actually walk onto our campus? The rest of the application is essays where we get to know the student, a list of extracurriculars. So is there a particular talent that the student has? Is there a way we can see them involved on our campus? Recommendations. So how does a college counselor or a teacher talk about the student as a student in the classroom, but also a community member. There might be an interview, things like that. So we're looking at who's this whole person. Now, Olin is actually pretty lucky in that um, we have what's called a need blind admission process, which means when we are making our decisions on who, to, who we will admit to our institution, we do not look at the family's ability to pay at all. So whether a student has a lot of money or doesn't have a lot of money, it has no impact. We're just looking at sort of who's the person. The number of need blind institutions in the country is relatively small. Um, I don't know what the exact number is, but there's about 4,000 colleges and universities total. Um, and it's, I would say it's probably less, less than a quarter uh, would be able to be need blind. Um, what, is the, what, what would happen if we weren't need blind? Mm -hmm. So for example, at Tufts, we were not need blind. We were what's called either need sensitive or need aware, which means we sort of go through and we say, okay, this group can academically do the work. Then we look at the personal side, who are these people that we want to admit? And then we have to figure out how do we admit the right number of students so that the enrolled class will meet our financial aid budget. So that might mean that for some percentage of the students that you're admitting, you are looking at how does their financial need, or if a school is offering merit aid, how does that impact your bottom line in terms of what your financial aid or um, either need-based or merit-based budget is gonna look like? For many schools, again, like my friends at Tufts, um, it's not that every application we're looking at the student's ability to pay, but overall, we have to be able to say, we predict that we're going to come in on budget for what our financial budget is. Being need blind, we have a little bit of a different um, way of looking at that, where we're need blind at Olin, so we admit regardless of a student's ability to pay, um, and we do something that's called meeting need. So we have both a merit program, merit-based aid program and a need-based aid program. Mm -hmm. Should I break those down first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things that, that you've touched on there, yeah. like um, one, to those of you watching us live, thank you. 
you're welcome to give us a little thumbs up if any of this is helpful. You're also welcome, I am watching this, so I'm monitoring the chat box. If you have a question for Emily or myself, please throw it in there. Um, even if you are watching this on a recorded uh, feed, I'm happy to get right back to you with a private message or even connect you with Emily after the fact. Um, the, the thing you touched on there in terms like need-based and merit-based and the differences between the two, when you evaluate someone being quote unquote need-based, um, for, just for context, the reason that this conversation sort of popped up originally on my to-do list of things to talk about on this little thing that I do is someone was doing a cash out refinance and they were like, well, I need to show less equity in my home because that's gonna help me in two years when my kid applies to college. Um, and and I, he, he was like, right? And I, was, I said, I don't know, I should call Emily and ask. Um, so when you look at need-based, how do you guys define that? And I realize that's a totally loaded question. <laughs> so, so there's sort of two forms of financial aid. Merit-based means you have something that we want to honor and reward you with money, right? It could be athletic talent, it could be academic talent. So that is something that has nothing to do with the family's ability to pay. Need-based aid is where we provide financial aid in order to make it more affordable for the family to apply. So one of the, one of the things Jason and I have bonded over is that oftentimes in our businesses, the answer to the question is, it depends, right? And so I think in the world of college admission, it's gonna depend. 4,000 colleges and universities in this country alone. Um, and that means that every school is probably gonna do things a little bit differently. There are some, some parameters I can give you that are helpful to sort of think about big picture and some resources big picture. Um, but when we think about need-based aid, there is most often um, a formula that schools will follow that says, how much can this family afford to pay? Or how much can they, it's actually, how much can this family afford to invest in their education. Um, and so it, we get that information in usually one of two forms or both of these forms. One is something called the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. So this is where we gather a ton of information about the student's family, their parents um, or legal guardians. And it's something where the FAFSA is as the, its name imply, uh, um, implies free to submit most colleges and universities that are gonna give need-based aid are gonna require the FAFSA. Some will require the FAFSA and something else I'll talk about in a second, but the FAFSA is gonna be where it's all gonna start. And that's gonna have information about income, some assets and things like that, but it is mostly about what is your, what is the family kind of income base? A couple of years ago, they actually made a change to the rules for FAFSA, which means that when you're submitting the FAFSA, you also have to submit tax forms. That's always been the case. But the change was, instead of submitting the prior year's tax forms, you're submitting the prior, prior year's tax forms. And part of the reason for the time frame of when folks are applying for the FAFSA, you actually won't have filed your taxes for the year, for that next year. So the FAFSA opens every year on October 1st. FAFSA is open. If you are someone out there with a, with a high school senior, you can do this now. Um, so the FAFSA is open um, and it's gonna ask you for, if you're submitting now, not this, not the taxes you will file based on 2020, which is the technically the year prior to your enrollment, but the year before. So it, your 2019 taxes would be the ones that you would file with your FAFSA now. So what do we do with the FAFSA? Do you have a question? 
you look like you well, I was going to say, and that, that becomes particularly important in a year like this, right? So like yes. in the same way that we talk about lending and the ways that those guidelines have changed this year in particular, because we would do for like a self-employed borrower, someone like myself that makes, you know, is commissioned, someone who's salaried is a little different, but someone who like myself is 100% commissioned, we're looking at what's your year-to-date profit and loss? What are your year-to-date stuff? Because we realize this year's weird. Right. And then the way we're going to treat it next year is probably going to be even more scrupulous than in the past, because we realize that there's this weird anomaly in your income. And so like that, that kind of stuff is going to come up, like as people are planning over the next, this is going to have a trailing impact over the next five, six years, you're going to still see the impact of COVID and some of these realities. And so whether it's, you know, whether it's, Doing things strategically with your financial planning, like refinancing your home or opening up a college savings plan or working with your financial advisor to put things in the right position. It's really all about getting it, if, if what I'm hearing is correct, it's really about getting it positioned a year or two years in advance in terms of your filing status for the FAFSA, right? Right. And if I, something I would want to note too is that you can appeal. Right. So we'll talk about like, what does the FAFSA tell us, you know, or, or how do we use those numbers, but you can also always appeal. So if your FAFSA is based on your prior, prior year income information, but you're paying this year, your actual ability to pay is different in this moment. Mm-hmm. Than it was the moment that we're looking at to calculate that financial aid. So a lot of financial aid offices are going to be amenable to thinking about my financial aid staff was super busy this spring talking to families about changes that were happening in their, in their lives to say, What's gonna what's gonna persist? How how can we change a package or what is actually something that let's wait a little and see if it recovers? Um, because mm-hmm. folks, there was a big scare and things are a little bit better. Depends on the industry. Depends on like you said, you know, someone who's an independent, uh, independently employed person versus somebody who's salary. There's lots of different ways that that, that could affect it. But um, so the FAFSA gives us what we call the EFC, the estimated family contribution, which is kind of a giant misnomer. Most people think that the estimated family contribution means you can write a check for that amount. It's not what it means at all. It actually means what, um, so, so the estimated family contribution from the FAFSA comes from something called the federal methodology, which is kind of a universal way um, that the Department of Education has sort of sanctioned to calculate what is this investment amount? What can you afford to invest in your, in your child's education? Mm-hmm. The, family contribution is not you have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, 120, $200,000 sitting in the bank that you can actually write a check for. It's what financially can your circumstances stand to invest. So that's where I think a lot of people get, they, they sort of think like my, my EFC is so high. How can that be possible? It's not actually about can you write the check? It's what can your financial circumstances sustain for investment in education. In the same way that, so, and this, I'd imagine this comes with the same kind of sticker shock that buying a home does in that when I qualify you, I'm looking at your gross income. I'm looking at certain liabilities, but not all your liabilities, right? Like I might say, I might look at your credit card debt, your student loans. I might look at your child support or alimony. Like I I might look at all kinds of things. 
but I don't look at say the fact that you might have three kids in daycare right now and that's you know a solid five grand a month out of your pocket um I don't look at you know I might not look at depending on how you pay if you have a, a nanny or something like that you know if it's not set up on an LLC if you're just doing it kind of under the table like I might not know that and so that's not going to factor into the way that I do it I'm also doing it based on your gross income and I've never met anyone that makes gross income or takes <laughs> home gross income. So, um, you know, like those are all things that, that we look at that kind of parallel, it seems with what you're doing in that you're calculating this number, but it doesn't necessarily mean like, here's the check you can write. Exactly. And I think the point you just made about there's some things that you look at and some things that you don't like the FAFSA looks at sort in some ways, the barest minimum amount of information. That's part of the reason why there are a number of schools that require a second form. So some okay. schools, like Olin is a school that just requires the FAFSA. We use the federal method. We use that. You know, we have we have good reasons for doing that. Some other schools will require most often something that is called the CSS profile. I have no idea what CSS stands for. <laughs> it is a financial form that you actually do have to pay a fee for. I think it's like $25 to submit it to every school you're submitting it to. Um, which is a little ironic that you have to pay for a form to get financial aid. Every um, school, as if that won't add up when your kid's applying yeah. all over the place. Right. So we, um, so that, so the CSS profile is where we start to get into some of those other pieces of information, right? Like that's where things like the value of the home might become a more significant piece where retirement might come into play. So a school that requires the CSS profile is gonna, they are gonna require the FAFSA because the FAFSA attaches to your, you know, you would upload your tax forms. It's essentially a data link that you can do. They're still gonna want the FAFSA because it has that official piece of what your actual income is. But the CSS profile gives them some more information to say, well, there's actually this much sort of in the sort of greater asset portfolio. So it's very possible that a school that requires the CSS profile might give less money because they're seeing sort of an investment, you know, kind of suite of information that says, mm -hmm their purchasing power is a lot bigger than just what that one number says. So that, so this is where I, I think one of the, anyone's best friend in this process, particularly as you're starting to get closer to actually having students who are thinking about applying is something called the net price calculator. So a number of years ago, it became federally required that every institution have what's called a net price calculator, which essentially takes for every family, the cost of attendance of that institution which is not just tuition, right? it's all the things you pay, tuition, room and board, all the associated fees. It takes the cost of attendance and it asks you some pretty detailed questions. And it gives you a pretty darn good estimate of what you can expect, both for need-based aid and merit-based aid, individually based on the institution. So you could go on right now to the net price calculator for Olin, fill out the information and say, if I were applying, you know, if I had a student applying to Olin right now, based on my current finances, this is what I would pay at Olin. And we would say, yep, every student gets this scholarship, this merit-based scholarship, based on your need, you get this, this is what it looks like. It's not a guarantee. I was gonna say, it sounds sort of like when I go on to, without naming lenders, but like I go on to the big sort of internet lender and I put in my own information and then I get my approval and I get my calculations of what my payment is. And then I'm shocked when I call a local lender and they tell me it's something very different because now they've actually had an expert come in and review all the stuff that actually should go in. It's not just borrower input. And that's it, right? So it's like, it's good information in equals good information out. 
So if you accurately, if you pull out your tax forms and you put the actual real information into the CSS or into the net price calculator, you should get pretty darn close mm -hmm. what you should be able to. And some schools that have like blanket um, merit aid programs based on if you graduate with this GPA or this test score or these sorts of different things, it's not going to capture everything, right? Because some merit programs are based on an application review. It's actually something that comes out of the admission office, might nominate someone for a merit, mm -hmm. athletic scholarships, things like that. Yeah. Happy yeah, if we, yeah. If you really need the, the tuba player and you've got a scholarship to award for it, then awesome. Right. So the net price calculator may miss some of that stuff, but particularly when thinking about what might I qualify for? And so I often tell families, you know, when you're, when your kid is a sophomore, just even if you're, even if the student has no idea where they want to go, you have no idea where you want them to go. You have any control over that. Yeah. <laughs> pick a couple of schools that are local to you, pick some large, some small, some public, some private, some private, look at a wide range of selectivity to see what that's going to look like, because there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of information in there that can help you say, okay, so this is what an out-of-state public institution looks like for my family. This is what an in-state public looks like for my family. This is, you know, as I, as you kind of get more and more selective, the programs become less merit and more need-based, but the need-based aid tends to be more generous at that level. Mm -hmm. so when you're, as you sort of decrease selectivity, you will probably have higher amounts of merit, less guaranteed need-based aid. Yep. Which makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's probably, I, somehow we're almost at 3.30, but that's probably um, a good kind of takeaway too, in that you've got, um, you've got to start, you know, just like I always say from a mortgage standpoint, like you want to get pre-approved before you find your home. You don't want to like go to the open house and then be like, holy bleep, I really want to buy this. And now let's see if I can afford it. I'd imagine it's very much the same thing from a college planning perspective in that just, I mean, granted, again, we're not financial planners here and, and both the things we do are big ticket items, but they don't work in a vacuum, right? Like you don't buy your home in a vacuum. You don't, your kids don't go to school in a vacuum. Like it's all part of a larger financial plan. And so preparing ahead of time, and it sounds like, like as crazy as it sounds, it sounds almost like, like seventh, eighth grade you should be going on and like doing some of these calculations because you're going to have to plan a couple of years ahead of time. Right. I and you just said it's like sophomore, junior year. That really means that's like your kids freshman year, essentially that the taxes from the, are going to be from the tax standpoint. Yeah. So I think so. what you just said about like, don't walk into an open house for a house that you can, well, you're never going to be able to afford that house. Right. Like I have given this piece of advice, to parents for years. You know, I will do a number of pro like junior parent college night programs for high schools across the country. And one of the, like my parting piece of advice is always sit down and have a conversation with your child about what the family can pay or who is paying for college before they make their actual application list. Better yet, make it before you go visit, right? I, I can give a personal story to that. I remember, so I, I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this. Um, so I'm proudly wearing my school stuff today. I dressed up. I didn't, I didn't put on my normal uniform of like 
plaid shirt and vest or sweater. I put on, you know, the athletic pullover today. Really Aww, dressed up for you. Suburban dad uniform. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I just, I, I will never forget standing in the kitchen when I got the letter from BU and I was so excited. I had gotten deferred. I was having nightmares that the state of Michigan was flooding because I was going to uh, East Lansing. I'd never been to the state of Michigan, but I was, a, I was accepted at Penn State. I had a roommate. I mean, at Michigan State, I had a roommate. Um, I applied because I saw a commercial on TV and in the book, they had like four things that I liked. So I just applied and I got in. Um, but like I really that. like, honestly, it was like the only other school I applied to was BU. And I got deferred and panicked. And then I remember when I got that admissions letter and I was like, so excited that I got in. And then my parents face when I read like the next line down of what I had been awarded or not awarded in my case and what my tuition bill was going to be was like one of the most heartbreaking moments of my entire life. <laughs> I have, so my, my parent, I'm one of three children, so I'm the middle. So my older sister went to college a few years before I did, but when, when my parents were getting ready for my sister to start thinking about college, they, you know, kind of sat her down and said, we will split college with you. So we have to be okay with whatever it's going to be. And we knew we were going to qualify for a pretty good amount of of financial aid. And I, my freshman year, I was going to qualify for more financial aid because there were going to be two of us in college at the same time, which is another interesting thing to know about what happens to your EFC when you have multiple kids in college. But so they said the same thing to me. We split it with your sister. We'll split it with you. And I applied to four schools, which like as an admission person, now the average is like 10. I'm like, what, how did I even get into college? I had the worst college search ever. I had, I mean, I loved where I went, but I had my, I had my eye on the prize. Like I visited one school and I was like, that's where I'm going. And, and my parents were like, we really hope this works out. And I applied to four other places because they made me, they wouldn't let me apply early decision. Like it was this whole thing. And I got into what I had, what I was assuming was my second choice. And they gave me a pretty massive merit scholarship. And I burst into tears and I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to go there. And I was so, and of course the school I wanted to go to and ended up eventually going to came last. Um, and it was, they, they were meeting need and their need was pretty darn close to what that merit scholarship was from the other institution. And so it worked out, it was fine, but it was, this is like these kinds of conversations where you're like, is this gonna happen? Like, yep. is it gonna be okay? It's hard to be in the position as a parent and granted, I have a six-year-old, so I've never had to have this conversation with my child, but having some of these conversations and appreciating that my parents were able to take that moment in my life and start to respect me as an adult that was part of making this decision and say, we got to look at this. Are you willing to take these loans out? Are you going to, is this going to be okay for you? Later on, being able to, you know, being the parent that says, you can't go to your dream school. We can't afford it. When you could actually know that sooner to be able to not, not that, you know, I do believe every child has to go through some challenges and they have to have some disappointments and they're going to be better for it. But there are ways that you can prevent it from being, um, from, from leading them into those open houses for houses they can't afford. And, you know, like going on those tours where all of a sudden you're like, I didn't realize we're not going to qualify for need-based aid and they only have need-based aid. Don't be that person. Yeah. And it's a great, honestly, that's a great parting thought. Um, you know, Emily, I know you're insanely busy <laughs> um, and that this is an insanely busy time and that you um, shipped Camille out so that you could come on today. So I, I really appreciate it. Um, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you 
Um, I know you mentioned and other resources if they have follow-up questions, um, you know, that, that they can kind of follow up on this conversation with. I think for, you know, for, you can always find me, I, my Twitter account is um, uh, at Olin E.R. Dean. Um, so I pump a lot of stuff from my financial aid folks. They have a lot of great instructional videos for the at Olin admission account. Um, so those are both really great, great places to look. Questions about Olin certainly can come to um, info at olin.edu. Looking for more general resources, you can actually find a lot of information about financial aid through the college board. They actually own the net price. Like a lot of places will use their net price calculator. They'll also use, they also kind of host the CSS profile. Um, but I would also say, and you know, this is mostly specific to my friends in Massachusetts, but MIFA, the Massachusetts Education Financing Authority, all the other states are gonna have something like this too. It's a great resource for thinking about not just how does all of this work, but they also tend to have some great recommendations around things like 529 plans and how do we think about planning and stuff like that. So um, all of the states are going to have something like that, but MIFA is a great resource as well. They have a ton of information on their website. I think it's just MIFA.org, M-E-F-A.org, but that's a great gener like generic independent of a school um, resource for stuff like this too. Thank you. This honestly, I, I, I always, I always make the analogy to the Super Bowl that like I do lending all the time. So, you know, like I say these things and it just seems like common sense. And you forget that like half of the U.S. population doesn't watch the Super Bowl. So when you talk to them about the commercial that was on that day, believe it or not, half the people have no idea what you're talking about. And I just don't know those people because they're not in my little bubble of the world. And so like for you to come here and break it down for all the folks that are out of that little bubble of the world, it was really informative and I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Finance with Factor. Please remember to like, rate, share, and subscribe. Then if you really like us, unsubscribe and resubscribe again. Of course, that can be our secret but it helps our ratings. Have an idea for an upcoming topic you want us to cover? Post a comment. For the full video version of this episode or any of our previous episodes, please find, like, and follow Jason on YouTube or Facebook at Jason Factor Mortgage Network and on Instagram at Finance with Factor. All content on Finance with Factor is self-published by Jason Factor, Senior Loan Officer, NMLS, number 1401985. All rates, guidelines, and advice discussed on this episode is subject to change. For a full list of disclosures, visit the License and Disclosure page at jasonfactor.com.